Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word once again, I'm grateful. I'm thankful that we get the words of eternal life to share with one another. I'm thankful that we have such good news to proclaim in a world of a lot of other news, a lot of other disappointments and discouragements and disillusioning things. And thank you, God, that this morning as we come, we can be filled with hope, but not a hope that's vainly placed upon positive thinking, but a hope that's based on the truth of the world. So Lord, as we go to your word, I know one thing, and that's that it's not intended to rearrange our lives, it's intended to completely change our lives. So God, I'm asking for nothing less than life transformation. And Lord, I'm asking as well that you would protect our ears from hearing anything not from you, whether it be something I'm saying or whether it be something that we're just hearing or thinking. But Lord, may we believe only the truths that you are communicating. Let your son receive all the glory and we also will be sure to give it to him. We thank you for Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. There's confusing terminology that we use in our world today, and I say that because we have the same word that represents so many things. Uh, the most simple example of this word would probably be the word love. We use the word love frequently. In fact, I, I challenge you today, take an inventory on all the things you love. You'll love a lot of very simple things. You'll love going on a certain hike. You'll love eating pizza. You'll love the ice cream you choose. You'll love people around you. You'll love your husband or your wife. You'll, you'll love. But obviously, if I say I'm loving all these things, I'm not loving them in the same way. There's clearly a differentiation between how I love pizza and how I love my wife. At least I sure hope there is. Uh, if there isn't, then I've got a serious issue with love. But here's the problem. The problem is this. We all sing a song from our childhood Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We all know that God is love. We understand that, and we, we know that truth. But I would like to suggest, as a hypothesis at the very beginning, that we do not have the relationship we could with God because we fail to define love the way God defines love. And if we did define love the way God defines love, not only would we experience a deeper, more passionate relationship with God, but we would also be a lot less discouraged and disillusioned by the things happening around us. I'll make another statement at the beginning. Allow me to suggest to you that usually when you begin to doubt God's love for you, he has just done what he promised he would do. Usually our doubt of God's love is a misunderstanding of his person. With that being said, I remember back in uh, January of 2015, and some of you may remember this incident, whether you've heard me talk about it or whether you saw it on some form of social media, but in January of 2015, we had a slightly traumatic day in our neighborhood, actually in our whole country. There was a famous cartoon that was published in France with the prophet Muhammad in it. And uh, it kind of enraged, not kind of, kind of is a very uh, light word for the situation. It enraged the Islamic world. And the most violent demonstration of this rage happened in my nation of Niger. 
in a span of 24 hours from when the mosques let out on Friday to the following Saturday at midday, virtually only a couple buildings were missed. Virtually every church building in our entire nation was burned down. They also came to burn down my house along with the houses of a lot of my teammates. Although when they came to my house, my Muslim friends and one Christian friend blocked the door saying, he's not even in there, let, let, just like let it go. They said, we'll come back later. Um, they, they wanted to crucify one of my friends on my street, not a street over, on my street because he's an outspoken follower of Jesus Christ. It was a very intense day. That happened on Saturday at our neighborhood. Three days later on Tuesday, I was walking the block in my neighborhood and I walked in front of one of the homes that had been burned out where a, a local house church met. As I walked on this road through, uh, I mean, a copious amount of biblical debris, as in burned out Bibles, hymn books, there was a marriage pamphlet half burned out, and I'm walking through thousands and thousands of pages of burned out scripture, I had an idea. I don't know why I, I, I had this thought, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to reach down and randomly pick up one page of Scripture. Now, it was all French Bibles. And I just reached down, and there was a whole Bible that was kind of like all burned, but like sort of like still the papers on top of you. And I just reached in and picked out one page of burning Scripture. And I would have shown it to you today, except somebody stole my Bible last year and it was in it. And and I, I pulled out this one page of burned out Scripture And I looked at the reference up in the upper corner. Half the page was burned away. And I saw the page I had picked up and I smiled. I had picked up Isaiah 43. And I know it's on that page immediately. Verse 2. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I will be with you. And you go down to verse 5, and it tells you to fear not for that very reason. And and what was so comforting that day was not the Lord explaining anything happening, but rather him reminding me that you will walk through the fire, and when you walk through the fire, I'm with you. When we talk about God's love today, we've looked at the, the person of Christ, we've seen the perspective of Christ, And then yesterday we saw the pardon of Christ. But today, I want us to see the passion of Christ. The passion. Now, when you think about passion, I don't know what comes to your mind, but I want you to think about passion the way the word passion actually is. Passion comes from the verb to suffer. So when we say I'm passionate about something, if I'm passionate about a certain sport, I'm willing to suffer for the sake of that sport. I'm passionate about unreached people groups in the world. That means I'm willing to suffer to see unreached people groups reach with the gospel. I'm willing to die that they might know Jesus loves them. I'm passionate about my generation that they'll be unconditional followers of Jesus Christ. I'm willing to suffer for them. I'm passionate about kids who are abused, neglected, and in danger. I'm willing to suffer for and with them. That's compassion with suffering. But I want you to look at the passion of Jesus Christ, and really the love of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that we'll see it from the perspective of the Holy Scriptures. John chapter 11, 
And we're only going to read the first six verses. I know this is a story about the resurrection of Lazarus, but we're not even going to get, he's going to stay in the grave in this message, all right? So just go ahead and recognize that. We're not going to focus on the graveside service that goes on. We're going to focus in on the request at the beginning of the chapter. So we'll read verses one through six, and then we'll look at uh, three different aspects that come out of these. I'll give you about seven more seconds to get there. John 11. Beginning in verse 1, here we go. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed her Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is the word of the Lord. As we jump into this passage, just look at the characters. We got Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and Jesus. The disciples are there, but they're going to talk a little later on and we're not getting to their part. Not right now. But I want you to see these characters because Mary and Martha are the ones concerned and they send a request to Jesus Christ. We'll look at their request in a minute, but I want you to see what their request does not include. Their request is not going to include the solution. They're only going to come and they're going to drop this request off at the feet of Jesus. So in taking notes, number one, love's request, love's request. But look at this request. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. I love this. I I love the question or not the question, the, 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 the statement, because this shows a growth in Martha's life. Remember back earlier in Martha's life, back in Luke chapter 10 and verses 38 to 42, she invites Jesus into her home. Beautiful woman, okay? I mean, like, as in she's the one that gave Mary the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's great. She's the one that invited Christ there. She prepared this meal. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing. Don't, don't, don't go on on Martha. That wasn't her problem. Her problem was she wanted everybody else to do what she did. Sometimes we think our ministry is so vital, everybody should be doing what we're doing. No, God's got all parts in the body, and he might have you in the kitchen preparing that meal so somebody else can sit at the feet of Jesus. Mary chose the good portion. That's where she was to be. But, but, continuing on, what does Martha say in chapter 10, verse 40 of Luke? She says, Lord, do you not care that Mary has left me to serve alone? That's fine. She can ask you. Jesus cares. He cares when you're grieved. He cares when you're burdened. But then what does she say? Tell her to help me. Do not call Jesus Lord, and in the next phrase, tell him what to do. We do it all the time, but be very careful. If we are to call him Lord, we are also making the strong statement, and I could say suggestion at times because of our faith, that he is indeed in charge, that he loves you more than you love yourself, and that you can trust his answer. 
She says, Lord, do you not care? And tell her to help me. But look what she does here. Lord, the one whom you love is ill, period. There's nothing more. That's it. That's love's request. But that's not where I want to focus. I just want you to see this change that took place. But now, look at that request again. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. All right, let, let, let me go ahead and tell you what it doesn't say. It doesn't say this. Lord, the one who loves you so much is ill. That's what it doesn't say. That's what we might say in our culture today. That person thinks so much of you. Write them a letter, please. That person, man, they follow everything you do on social media. I mean, like, man, you write something and they're just glued to it. They're, uh, my, my kids are always talking about, about, about the way that you, like, played with them years ago. Like, it's like, do something for them. They look up to you. No, none of that. None of that. Look at the request. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. If you want peace in your relationship with God, you need to come to terms with this. Your relationship with God is not about your love for God. It will always be about God's love for you. That's where stability comes. No, 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 hang on. If you want intimacy with God, <laughs> yes, you're going to grow in your love, but your love for him is going to grow as you recognize his love for you. I remember, uh, man, this was probably, probably a solid six, seven years ago. It doesn't feel like that long. I was in Northern Ireland and at this conference, uh, kind of for youth, and there was a 23-year-old girl. She was an actress, and she comes up to me after a message. And she says, uh, actually, I mean, it wasn't just coming up. She's like, we need to go talk. So me and another guy went and we, we met with her in this room and we started chatting. And this is what she says to me. She says, look, I believe the gospel. I believe what you're saying about Jesus Christ and what he demands from our life. I got two problems. Problem number one, I don't love Jesus that much. Problem number two, I don't really hate my sin very much. And then she looks at me as though I'm supposed to answer. My first thought was, ooh, this is terrible. And then it was, it was one of those moments, kind of like in a film, where everything stops and the main character is like in his own world or her own world. And they're processing. And nobody else is moving. It was, it was like one of those moments. And it, it was so clear. It was like the Lord in his graciousness just paused everything. I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. And he says, Nathan, before you answer this, dear girl, I want to ask you two questions. Nathan, do you love me like you should? Say, Lord, you know I don't love you like I should. That's very evident in my life. Okay. Question number two, do you hate your sin like you should? Lord, if I hated my sin like I should, I suppose I would never go back to it. Exactly, Nathan. My relationship with you has never been based on how much you love me, and it's never been based on how much you hate your sin. It's always been based on how much I love you and how much I hated your sin, and that's why I went to Calvary. Now answer this girl. Listen, the request that they make in this passage is powerful when we recognize how it plays out in our life. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Jesus is going to answer 
not because of any performance of Lazarus, not because of how much time they spent together, not the hospitality enjoyed at Bethany in the home of this precious family. He is going to answer because of his character. And if you want peace in your life, do not look at your performance when considering the person of Jesus Christ. Look at who he is, at his faithfulness, and in the light of his character, get to know him. And as you get to know him and you enjoy him, intimacy will come through realizing what he has already done for you. That brings peace. It's like this. How many of you, don't raise your hand, okay? How many of you, Ever doubt your salvation? If you're in the younger generation, I'm going to assume, yeah, you're like, my arm is up high right now. I have doubted. Listen, when we doubt our salvation, what we are usually almost always looking at is our experience. Did I say the right things? Did I confess enough? Did I, uh, did, did I actually like fully mean it in my heart? Like, listen, you did it wrong. Okay. That's not the point. Jesus did it right. Is my faith in what he did? Is my faith that he died for my sin? That he paid for my doubts? That he paid for my deficiencies? That he paid for my transgressions? Do I believe that he died for my sin according to the scriptures? That he was buried and that he rose again? My faith is not my experience back in 1988. My faith is 2,000 years ago at a cross of Calvary. That's where my faith rests. And that's why I know in whom, not what, I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded. I'm absolutely persuaded. I have peace when I go to bed. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day, the day I see Jesus Christ. I have peace. I have assurance of salvation. And it's not because of any words that have come out of my mouth. It's because I know in what and in whom I have trusted. And that is the cross of Calvary where Jesus Christ died for me. So with that said, look at love's request. But moving on, we see love's request. But in verse 4, how vital. But when Jesus heard it. Now, normally we're saying he loves Lazarus. So he hears it. What's he going to do? Same thing's going to happen down a little bit later. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. All right, let's think about this. It, he says, this illness does not lead to death. Let me ask you a question. Does Lazarus die in this chapter? Yes is the answer. He really dies, like dead, okay? Jesus this illness does not lead to death, but he dies. So what's Jesus saying? He says, he says, okay, hang on, hang on. There's a difference between leading to something and going through something and ending at something. Now think about it like this. When, uh, when I drove up this mountain, all right, um, I, I, uh, I, I had to go through a lot of stop signs, not many stop lights, all right, but stop signs on the way up here. And as I came to the stop signs, listen, I stopped completely, full stop. Then I went on. But even though my journey led to many, many stop signs coming to Yosemite, I can tell you all, my journey did not lead to a stop sign. I am not still sitting at a stop sign. I'm not still admiring the stop sign. I'm actually up here at Yosemite with you all enjoying this camp. But my journey did go to a stop sign at some point. 
When Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, what he's saying is this is not the destination. Death is really just a distraction, per se, on the way. What is the destination in verse 4? If you look at it, what is it? The destination in verse 4 is God's glory. God's glory is the destination. The distraction is death, but the direction is going through it. God does not bypass it because, you see, the very thing that we deem a distraction, the very thing that we go through in this route to God's glory is the very platform through which he's going to show his passion, his love, his concern, ultimately his care for Lazarus. In other words, he's allowing Lazarus to get to a certain point so that God's glory can be put on display. I wonder in our lives, how often do we view something as an ending when God says that's merely a stop sign on the way? It's merely a platform I'm going to use to show off to the world around you. I wonder, are you discouraged about the stop signs? Are you discouraged about the what you call detours? Now, remember this verse that Ken brought out earlier. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Go there real fast. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I want you to see something. Oftentimes, it, 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 people, people memorize it, but they don't usually memorize it correctly. What I mean by that is they memorize it, but they, when they quote it, they skip the end. Listen. No temptation has overtaken you. And remember, temptation can be testing as well. We've talked extensively about it. When it comes from God, it's to test you that you might be proven. When it comes from the enemy, it's temptation that you might fall. All right. So, no temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That's where he stopped that you may be able to endure it. Do you guys see what God's escape is? God's escape is not evacuation. God's escape is endurance. Like this is huge. In other words, God is not about getting you out of tough situations. Okay, you say, well, sometimes he is. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to guess. There have been many times in your life where you have prayed a prayer. I'm just going to guess and probably a lot of you, you said, Lord, I want to know you. And then you might have added on even, I want to know the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your sufferings. I don't know how, but you probably prayed, I want to know you. I'm sure you prayed, I want to know you. I'm sure any of you walking with Jesus Christ have prayed, I want to know you. But please, let's be logical for the next 30 seconds. If you say you want to know the Lord, what is one of his names? His name is Healer. Jehovah Rapha, if you want to know God as your healer, what is the prerequisite for knowing him as your healer? You've got to have an illness or a sickness, don't you? It sure is hard to be healed of nothing. If you want to know God as your comforter, my friend, you've got to have some deep internal anguish that you're suffering through, and God will show up as your comforter. If you want to know God as your restorer, You've got to lose something significant that you can know God as your restorer. If you want to know God as a door, 
uh, you got to kind of feel like there's a wall. If you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your salvation, you've got to be lost or else you'll never be saved. How about this one? One more. If you want to know Jesus Christ as he calls himself later in this passage, the resurrection, you got to die. There's no way around it. Do you really want to know the Lord or do you just want to know a lot about the Lord? Which is it? Do you want an intimate relationship with him where he shows himself personally to you and intimately to you? If you do, watch out. You're asking for a life of drama. You're asking for a life of disappointments from a worldly perspective. And you're asking for a life where people are going to look at you and they will see the glory of God even in the middle of your sufferings. No testing's overtaken you. That's not common to man. He'll give you a way of escape, but that way of escape probably is a bunch of endurance. That's the escape. My brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you. When God says, I love you, it does not mean what most of us think it means. He says, I love you so much, I want you to know me. I love you so much, I want to show myself through you. I love you so much that I'm willing to disappoint your expectations for the sake of answering your prayer. Is that the God you want to know? Because that's the God who is. You see, first we saw love's request, but now we've just looked at love's reply. But there's one more thing I want us to to take our focus to, and that's in verses 5 and 6. This is love's restraint. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately went to heal him. I didn't read that right, did I? Let's try it again. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Is it fair to assume that there are people here that feel like God hasn't shown up on time? Is there somewhere in your life where you wish the answer would have come yesterday? Could it be that the places where God's actually seeming to delay is actually the place where he's setting the stage for his glory? Could it be the very things that we're really disappointed about right now? Is actually God saying, I love you too much to give you the answer you want right now because I want to give it in a way where when it comes, people will only see me in you. Why do I say all that? I say it because of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There's a lot of other passages we could base it on, but if you turn there, you don't have to, you can just keep listening, but if you turn there and you see verses 7 through 12, what does it start out with? Paul praying. When Paul prays, he says, three times he prayed something specific. What did he pray? He said, he had this thorn that he asked God to remove. The first time God says no. Second time he says no. And then the third time he says no. And then he tells him that his grace is sufficient. But let's talk about this. When he talks about this thorn, what does he say about the thorn? One, he says the thorn was given to him. Kind of a positive thing. Not forced on him. Not like, bam, here's a thorn you got to deal with. No, 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 no. Given, given, a gift. So if Paul gets a gift given to him, we are like, okay, that's positive. But then what? 
It says the purpose of this gift. The purpose of the gift was that he might not become conceited. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds positive too, because I mean, like, does God want us to be conceited? No. But then there's something else. It says that a messenger of Satan to harass me. Since when would Satan want you not to become conceited? You're like, this seems like a complete contradiction. Listen, we've been hearing about this all week from James 1. When God is working, when he is providing these gracious thorns that we want to have gotten rid of, that we don't want in our life, that are intended, that we might be humbled and he might be exalted, Satan's sending his messenger too at the same time. The messenger of discouragement. The messenger of doubt. The messenger completely of saying, my God's not fully good, otherwise called complaining. And then what happens? We focus on the messenger of Satan instead of seeing the gift of God. And what happens as we go through that? We come to the end of the chapter, or not the end of the chapter, the end of that portion, and, he, and Jesus Christ says to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is what? Made perfect in what? In weakness. No, no, listen. Weakness is not just something that God deals with. Weakness is not just something that he's like, ah, I'll be with you. Weakness is not just something where it's like, it'll be okay, my child. No. Weakness is the very vehicle to seeing God's strength come out of your life. And if you are not willing to embrace weakness, you are refusing to accept God's strength. This is the pathway. When God says, I love you, he says, I'm going to break you so much so that the world can't even see you and you're going to know me and I'm going to show myself through you and I'm going to get all the glory. For in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed in the place where he was Two more days. That's why I say to you, God loves you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Amen, he does. But it does not mean what we think it means. It means watch out, your life is about to be wrecked. And you're about to have intimacy with God in ways you probably never even envisioned. He wants to show himself to you. I want to share with you a little poem that my sister wrote. My sister almost died many years ago at the age of 20, 21. She contracted Lyme disease and it went uh, undiagnosed for 18 months. And by the time it was diagnosed, she was on IV basically constantly. I headed off to the Middle East. and I remember thinking I'll probably never see my sister again. She was falling asleep at the bottom of the steps, couldn't even get up to her room. Uh, she was just, uh, uh, just uh, she was a uh, tiny person to start with, and then she just became literally like nothing, humanly speaking. But my sister has an incredible relationship with the Lord, and she also has a great gift with the pen. She picked up her pen, and she started writing. In the middle of her sickness, she wrote this poem that to this day impacts me. And really, it brings out the love of God and what he's seeking to do in your life. Listen to these words. I sang the hymns on Sunday, and I knew all the lines to 
all to Jesus I surrender and his hand in mine. But then the day arrived when God put it to the test. He said, I want to use your life to show my way is best. I don't want folks to only hear words of trust and praise. It's not enough to quote the lines on which you have been raised. I want your life to prove it. I want the world to see what I can do within a heart surrendered to me. For I will show the great things that I, the Lord, can do. I will display my glory and I'm asking to use you. But I don't need your efforts, your energy or strength. I'm not looking for a hero or some superhuman saint. I want to have your weakness. I want to take your pain and use your inabilities to glorify my name. And I want you to trust me, to daily seek my face. Listen, I have not promised answers. I have only promised grace. For the underlying issue It's really not about all the great things I'll do through you or the way you'll help me out. But it's what I'm doing in you that I want the world to see. That the way a life of nothingness is made beautiful in me. So trust me, precious child. And someday you'll understand that what seemed to you so senseless was exactly what I had planned. The Lord does not demand our understanding in the situations of life. This morning, we took a glance at the person of Jesus Christ and his passion for you. What is his passion? What was Jesus willing to suffer for? He was willing to suffer that you might have a relationship with him. He says, I love you. And in that love is the package that, Logan, I want you to know me intimately. And it's going to cost you everything. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Your love is perfect. No, I, I don't understand it all. But I know you. And when I don't understand your love, I look back at that middle cross and I remember, for God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus. In this is love, not that I love God, but that he loved me and gave himself for me. Father, my prayer this morning is that when you say you love us, We wouldn't misunderstand your love, but instead we would say, Lord, this is kind of scary, but you're with me. I'm ready. I want to know you, Lord. Thank you that our relationship will never be based on how much we love you. It will always be based on how much you loved us and what you did for that love in that love. So father, we commit ourselves into the hands of that love, into the love of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.